Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb, Blasting Game, and we are here today with Christiana Kimmick. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so I have a little bit of a cold and I'm a little punchy, but here's the thing. Some interesting stuff comes out when this happens. So in the spirit of two women talking to each other, <laughs> here it goes. <laughs> you are bringing this in. All right. Uh, We're going there was a it. really cool speech that I'm going to play for everybody by Michelle Williams. So if you're rolling your eyes, you can. There's a little button that fast forward 15 <laughs> seconds at a time. Feel free to press it. Okay. So tell them where she did the speech because this she is did be- this speech at the Emmys. Michelle Williams. Okay. Check it out. I want to say thank you so much to FX and to Fox 21 Studios for supporting me completely and for paying me equally because they understood. Because they understood that when you put value into a person, it empowers that person to get in touch with their own inherent value. And then where do they put that value? They put it into their work. And so the next time a woman, and especially a woman of color, because she stands to make 52 cents on the dollar compared to her white male counterpart, tells you what she needs in order to do her job. Listen to her. Believe her. Because one day she might stand in front of you and say thank you for allowing her to succeed because of her workplace environment and not in spite of it. Thank you. Okay. So that was off topic. However... It's not really off topic. No, it's definitely not off topic because we're talking about two women who were, you know, kind of brought down by certain aspects of their life and clawed their way back up. And whenever being put in the right environment, definitely found success and definitely found their voices and the abilities to, you know, succeed. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a common thread through a lot of the podcast guests that we've had and through Lisa and Zena, which is seeking refuge in religious practices. And it was interesting, you know, listening to Zena's, she would sneak out to go to church. And, you know, that was like looking for, and, and Lisa talked about how religion and, you know, the Moonies were the safe haven you know, she called it a religious refuge. And I I think that I know that a lot of people achieve many great things in spite of what they have had to deal with in life. But it's good to think about how we can create environments where people don't have to constantly be overcoming things, how, how we can try to minimize that. And one of those things is how we help people feel, children specifically feel about themselves, how we foster self-esteem. Are we contributing to the positivity of it? Or are we contributing to the narrative that that tears people down? In this p- specific case, we're talking about, you know, two women. The thing that whenever I started, you know, really diving more into studying substance abuse counseling, just substance abuse and and what comes with it basically one of my thoughts and we talk we talk a lot about my thoughts from 
the quote unquote normie perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But one of my thoughts, I, I really, I thought that the substance abuse was the issue. Right. Before I came in. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It really is. I thought, okay, okay, there's an issue with substance abuse. What I didn't realize and what so many people have been able to educate me about, especially by producing the podcast and just re-listening to it over and over again, has been that it really truly is the symptom, not the problem, not the true problem. Yes, it, it becomes problematic in your life, but the symptoms of it and how much trauma in childhood impacts that. And so, you know, just kind of leading around to that topic, you know, whenever there, there's not going to be any perfect family, right? There's, there's always going to be some form of dysfunction, minor dysfunction, but whenever there's like specific trauma or specific discord where a child isn't getting exactly what they're needing, or they're not put in an optimum environment for their development and for healthy development, if you will. You find a lot of those symptoms starting to come out in adulthood, and a lot of that's being talked about in recovery, which has been really phenomenal. And in Zena's episode, it was really interesting hearing the dichotomy of growing up in a household with two different religions. That parent. was that was. I mean, that really struck me. And and in and very, it wasn't like different types, different sects of Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very Muslim, very Christian. Mm-hmm. And to the point where she, you know, even wore head coverings, you know, at one point. I think every child, every childhood is going to have, you know, traumas. We call them big T, little T, you know, for traumas, like big traumas, little traumas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they can be anything, right? They could be witnessing a fight with your parents. They could be, you know, whatever it is, all the way up to the things that we've heard about. What matters is how it's handled. Mm. That's what matters. It's not that you, you know, I don't think to myself that I'm going to create the perfect childhood for my boys. I think to myself that I want to teach them how to have feelings and how to walk through things, how to walk through difficult emotions, how to face adversity, how to be a good person when it's easy not to. Mm. Those are the things that I want to teach them. And that life happening on life terms is just part of the deal. Yeah. So it's about really showing up as a parent or, you know, guardian or adult and teaching children how to have feelings. Because what we do when we use is we use drugs and alcohol as an anesthetic, We don't want to feel those feelings anymore, so we drink and we use, and that is the solution to our problem until it becomes the problem, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about that a lot. And it's just, I mean, it is, you hear it so much, but the self-esteem is so important in terms of being able to face adversity and difficult feelings. Mm. And the thing that all of these scenarios that we talk about, the thing that they instilled was lack of value and self-worth. None of the people that we've talked to felt good enough as children. Right. And we were just talking about how many of our podcast guests have even said that they they had just come to that point where they were ready to die. Yeah. Life was done. They they were they were like, yeah. okay, I'm ready for this to be over now. Right. And I 
I didn't realize how many people have struggled with that. Yeah. You know, suicide is an issue. There's Suicide Awareness Day that just happened this month. Unfortunately, we've lost so many amazing people to suicide. Yeah. But I didn't realize how many people actually struggle well, with it. Alcoholism is suicide on the installment plan, right? Like <laughs> you're it's you're killing yourself over over a long period of time. And at some point in that, maybe, maybe not in the early days, but at some point you're very well aware mm-hmm. of what's going on and you come to terms, you know, if you use drink and use like I did, like Zena did, maybe like Lisa did, you understand that you are putting your life in extreme danger there. I mean, it's not, that was not lost on me. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then you have a situation like with Zena where Zena her husband dies, you know, oh. and it's not lost on us how deadly this is. Right. But the inability to feel the feelings, it's just too strong. Yeah. You know, it's just too strong and we don't have the skills. And so, you know, the thing I, what I love about opening up with that speech that Michelle Williams gave, which is, you know, that one's about equal pay for women, but it's also about people being in environments where they matter and where they feel like they matter Mm -hmm. and how important that is for people to be able to flourish. Mm -hmm. That kind of takes me, and I'm going to jump around a little bit because we started on on a different kind of note with that speech. That specifically reminds me of something that Lisa shared in episode 23, which is, so she's the child of, you know, two parents who were- Mimi uh, and Danny. Mimi and Danny, not mommy and daddy. Mm-hmm. She called them Mimi and Danny by their request. And her parents were, if you know anything about the, the, unifi- the, the, but what were oh, they the called? unification, the Unif- unification church. church, what they're the most famous for in the media is their, their marriage ceremonies with, I think it was like a thousand couples at a time or right, in, Madison, like Square in Madison Square Garden. So they'd all stand, face each other. They were people that were hand chosen by the leader, Reverend Moon. He chose who your your partner was and you married them, whether you knew them or not. And so her parents were married. I think they were married in the cult. And, uh, or no, she was not married. No, not her parents. They, her parents were not married. No, I'm sorry. she married someone else. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because... Uh, Sounds a lot cheaper than what the rest of us do. Right? It kind of does. <laughs> wedding industry. Making, t- yeah. raking yeah. it in. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, I'm going to get married in Madison Square Garden with a thousand other couples. It'll be affordable. Yeah, it'll be super affordable. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just you split know. it a thousand yeah. ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just... Put it on my bill. Just uh, $20. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things she talked about was the children who were called blessed children mm-hmm. within the Moonies were children born of couples married, That's chosen right. and married by That's Reverend right. Moon specifically. So Lisa talks about premarital sex is one of the forbidden sins within the Moonies. So she ended up going out. She found a boyfriend in high school, started having sex, you know, and, and, you know, was a good kid. It just, this was one of the things that, that they said was a no-no. And she was best friends with Reverend Moon's kids. Mm-hmm. And he came back, she basically came back. She must've said something. The kids found out. She and gets she found out. She yeah. had a boyfriend. They were having sex. And uh, Reverend Moon said that only his kids now only could play with blessed children. They were only allowed to play with blessed children. So she loses her best friends 
that she's grown up with since she was young. And then she also says, she's, this is the direct quote from uh, the episode. She says, so I like to say that my savior, my, my Messiah basically like rejected me. Yeah. Like I wasn't good enough for my Messiah. Right. And I just, that's the first thing that popped up in my head from what you and I were just talking about, because again, it's like going back to this environment that's conducive for, you know, even a 17 year old child or 16, however old she was at that time. And it's, it's just, it was like stripped all away from her. I think, yeah. And I think a lot of this is not, I mean, I think a lot of people in a lot of different situations, you know, there were kids that weren't allowed to play with me because I was struggling and, you know, not, not academically, but with drugs and alcohol and school and whatever, just get, I was, you know, labeled a troubled kid uh, and not incorrectly, but, you know, there were parents who didn't let their children hang out with my sisters or hang out with me. And, you know, it's all coming from this place of fear, of fear that you're going to taint, corrupt my child, Mm -hmm. right? And I get that. I understand wanting to protect your child. But there is so much, there's so much missing in our modern narrative about teaching people how to navigate real life, teaching people how to navigate friends who are doing things they shouldn't do or doing things that are advanced, whether they should or, you know, making Mm -hmm. no judgment about it, teaching people how to deal with feeling left out, teaching people. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I take phone calls where uh, I'll I'll give you an example. took a phone call recently and the woman was feeling left out. Uh, she was in a bridal party feeling left out and called me from, you know, the the wedding location, told me about it and was like really unhappy considering like maybe I shouldn't be friends with these people, you know, just really going, having this downward spiral, right? And And so we tracked back like where did this feeling come from? And what she told me was the feeling was, these people aren't my real friends. I don't have any real friends. That was the narrative. That was where she had arrived by the time she called me. And we backtracked to she felt left out. So we backed all the way, you know, several times like, okay, this is this, this is this, you know, what does this feel like? Where did that come from? And so then we talked about what it would feel like to be a bride and to have to make those decisions and how you have to make all of these decisions and there's all they're all about you know who's going to be in the bridal party and who's going to um hold you know do the reading or hold the you know bouquet or mm-hmm. um you know 10,000 other things i can't even remember what we did and how you're going to pay for it and all these different things and all the, all the minute details of what is often a modern wedding and how that makes how that would make somebody feel and this woman was like yeah you're right that would be really hard i can't imagine and then you know talking about like well would you feel any differently about this person so we walked through the whole thing and at the end we talked about how the the job of the bridesmaids and of a friend is to be supportive of your friend in their wedding Mm -hmm. and showing up for them and making things as happy and as easy as possible and that if she focused on that that she would have a good time. And she reported at the end of the weekend that she had a fabulous time, that she focused on supporting her friend, the bride, and she was able to clearly see that 
these people were her friends, that this was one of those situations that, you know, was difficult. All of this is to say that I feel like so often we are not taught how to deal with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stuff over time leads people who have a genetic predisposition to come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with them, Mm -hmm. that people cannot be trusted, that they're going to be left out, that they're not good enough, that they're different. And they create a case in their head over time, you know, you, oh, I, I'm, you know, these people aren't my real friends. This teacher thinks I'm stupid. You know, my mom thinks this, like th- there's a case that's being created where the narrative follows, I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of it has to do with these types of interactions that happen that are just life happening. And if we as parents can teach children, people, and, you know, teenagers, friends to walk through difficult emotions, if that becomes a real part of what we're, what this next generation of people learns on top of, you know, math, science, English, whatever, I think we will see an improvement in these problems because it is at the core of every single one of the people we have talked to that they ultimately do not feel good enough. And that's another resounding theme that I hear all the time. I'm not good enough. And just like you said, stacking that up, stacking that mm-hmm. narrative, something happens, you're like, oh, yep, Building that's the that thing. Case. Yep. You and I were just talking about that, something mm-hmm. that I have done mm-hmm. recently in regards to certain situations. We all do it. So, okay. So Counselor Ashley. Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, if someone's stuck in that kind of situation, since this is what we're talking about, the type of situation where there's a case building, they're feeling, they're stuck in, in certain feelings, you know, the, not just like, oh, I had a bad day, but yeah. like you're, you're basically, you're building, you're building a case against yourself. So either you're self-sabotaging, you're stuck in a belief that is extremely negative. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. They don't like me. I don't belong. What's a good first step or or best practice that someone can do to get unstuck? Oh, gosh. There's so many variables, um, you know, and I'll do my best to make up a scenario and answer the question, but there's so many variables depending on how old they are, what their background is, what they're going through. How, you know, there's just, I mean, it is, that's an that that the answer to that question would be different in different situations, obviously. But I think, you know, the first thing that to do is to realize that you're building a case, right? So, you know, I mean, this is hard. This practical idea from this, right, is really difficult from a child perspective because that's really where the people who are the daily interactors with the children are most helpful here. But on a more macro scale in terms of like how this how this can be practically implemented. So uh, let's say that you have a friend and they told you something that led you to believe that they don't think you're a good parent. So maybe they said, oh, that's a really bad school. I would never send my kid there. And then you they, then you say, oh, I send my kid there, right? Or something, something mm-hmm. that leads you to believe that. The way one builds a case is you take the original information, oh, this person thinks I'm a bad parent. And everything they say and everything that they do 
you look for the ways with which that idea applies. So if they say, oh, I, you know, I, my kid is uh, eating all vegetables and wouldn't eat a cookie because that's terrible for them. You go, oh, see, that's just them pointing out how they're a better parent than I am. Or, you know, all these, you just find all the pieces, all the different things. Maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a little comment here. Maybe they cancel um, a play date and you go, oh, that's because they think I'm a bad parent. You know, you just, you keep building a case Mm -hmm. of why your idea is correct why you think that person thinks whatever they think. And the problem with building a case is that a lot of the times we're wrong. And a lot of the time it stems from some emotional damage or, you know, funky wiring that we have. And we keep it in our heads and eventually we have some beef with somebody that has to do with one incident that led us to build a case that isn't accurate, right? So we do that a lot in marriages. Mm -hmm. Um, We do that a lot in relationships. Um, And kids do that a lot in the sense that naturally that if they think that mom doesn't love them, then things that mom does that that could be interpreted that way are going to be thrown into that pile as evidence of them not loving the child, you know, the child. Like, so I think it's really important for example, one of the things that um, I, I have a friend who who tells her kids that she's in a bad mood, but she loves them and it doesn't have anything to do with them. So, um, and my dad actually used to do that. He would tell me, oh, I, you know, I'm grumpy today. It's, it has nothing to do with you. Oh. And I always found that to be really helpful because I assume everything's about me. So it's easy for me <laughs> to assume that, you know, that, that the anger or whatever mm-hmm. is about me. And, and I think a lot of kids absorb what us as parents are putting out there. Mm-hmm. And that becomes part of their inner narrative. So like saying something like, mommy's cranky today, but she loves you and it has nothing to do with you sounds silly and um, like you're reading too many parenting books. But it also is one of those things that maybe that's the difference between them adding that to the evidence of whatever Mm -hmm. and them going, oh, mommy's in a grumpy mood. So I think like that kind of stuff, it's, it's the little changes that we can make in our communication that teach each other how to move through what is ultimately normal, painful parts of life. Okay. I love that. I think that that's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more? Because I know that you're pretty close with Zena and you have worked with her as well in the I past. Have. So yep. kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm backtracking, backtracking, jumping all over yeah. the place. Normally we're kind of going bullet point by bullet point for episodes, but we're just kind of, you know, we're going, taking the loopy train today. <laughs> We're, we're on the loopy train we're today. on the loopy train. So one of the things that we had disclosed in Zena's title and in her episode is that she was on Intervention, a show Intervention. Oh my gosh, yeah. And so I think this is really important because especially for me, whenever I was first learning more about substance abuse, I actually watched that show like crazy. Not because I felt like, oh, everything is, you know, maybe perfectly portrayed correctly because maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I think what it did was help me get like a real personalized view 
of what someone's going through when they're using. And that was very helpful. Hmm. And on the difficulty of it's not, you can't just say, just snap out of it, just put it down. Some people have, like, let me put it that way. Some people have had some sort of wake up call, if you will, and been able to just stop. But most of the time, it's a very difficult process. And there are a lot of people who struggle on an ongoing basis, especially in early sobriety. So I watched Zena's episode. And one of the things you said in in her in, in her intro in the opening was just seeing who the girl who she was in that episode to who she has grown into Crazy. is night and day. And it's amazing to see. So if you guys have a chance, the episode is in the show notes. We have it listed and uh, you should go take a, just take a watch, take a look, (laughs) take a look and then take a listen because it's really amazing to see that transformation Mm -hmm. from literally someone who's in the middle of using. Yeah. You don't usually get that level of You know, I mean, you know, there are pictures of me when I was using, but nobody was recording me using, thank God. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine how that was, how that felt. And I know you asked her about it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I asked her about it because I can't, I I mean, the whole thing was just crazy. It's funny. I can't watch that show Mm. because I've had an intervention done on me and then, and also I've, I'm an interventionist, so I've done a lot of interventions. I I do a little bit of a different model of intervention, but um, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like when it's that close to you, you pull the whole thing, you critique every little thing and it's like, sure, you know, it's just not, I don't know. So I haven't seen the whole episode, but I did see Zena talking on it and the difference between (laughs) what she, how she was then and how she is now is, is a miracle. And, and it's exactly what happens when people recover, you know, it's, you see it all the time. These miracles happen. I think that, uh, you know, I don't, I can't speak to what it's like to get sober from that publicly like that. Right. Um, I can't even imagine. No, but I also know that you're so disconnected Mm -hmm. from the world you so are you've gone so deep into your dark hole that it's almost like you're not even really aware that mm-hmm. it, it's kind of lost on you and my guess is that it probably wasn't till she you know till later that she really started to go oh my gosh like my using is on television right and you know i mean it, it, i i suspect it was i suspect it's you know in the same realm of like, okay, my story is now live public on a podcast and for anyone to hear. And which is a much smaller version of my using is on A&E. But you know, what I also heard was that it was her opportunity to get quality treatment. Mm. And she was so defiant, but because they were going to do a follow-up show, the treatment center held on to her when normally they probably would have kicked her out. Wow. And the fact that they held on to her was a huge factor in why she got sober. Wow. So I think it, you know, I, I, I think there was accountability on the part of the treatment center to deliver, you know, there was this skewed accountability, like basically the needs of the show and the way that it worked 
ultimately worked in her favor. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. And so take it as you will, good, bad, or ugly. I think that that contributed to her, you know, basically they wouldn't kick her out. And, you know, I, her, Zena shares and is willing to talk a lot about losing her kid and losing custody. And it is the length of time that her daughter was away from her, that it took for her to get her daughter back. I mean, that stuff, that stuff is real. That is, that is, and that is the depths of hatred and stuck that you become in your Mm -hmm. disease. That is a perfect example is that you have a child that you cannot get sober for. You know, you just, it's, it does, and it doesn't mean you don't love them. Yeah. But you just, you just can't, you know, it's just not in, you know, self-will. Your willpower is just not a match for what's happening in your brain. So I think that um, Zena's story was really an amazing testament to getting sober, doing the work, and getting her daughter back. And now, um, after she's sober a long time, she's had two more children, it is really cool to see her parent her daughter. I mean, she has three daughters, but to parent her daughters, particularly her oldest daughter, who she's been through all this with because she still seeks professional help Mm. to help her manage and walk through and to help her language and and construct a home environment that shows her daughter that she, you know she's a value and all these things. So it's it's been a cool I mean knowing Zena is really cool and just the crazy dichotomy of religious yeah. uh, background you know that that was just wild. That was probably one of the toughest things for me to hear because it Such a complication. It's like, where do you even start? It's not even like, like, oh, Christian and like, but like you're in two different denominations. Right, right, right. Like there's no middle ground there. None whatsoever. No, there's no, and and then, and, and the implications of, you know, being female and, you know, where they lived in the country. And I mean, it, and and dad being, you know, an immigrant. I mean, it was just, it it was so, it added this layer that we don't usually, you know, that we we haven't had yet, which is this cultural dynamic that is there for the children to interpret, Mm -hmm. right? And um, put on them and, and how that plays into all of the other factors and the genetic component that comes along with uh, addiction and mental illness. And she also talked about all the, you know, the doctors giving her pills and how, you know, when she lost her daughter, when she was having those seizures, she was only on medication prescribed to her by a doctor, you know. Isn't that scary? (laughs) And I hear that a lot, like, oh, it's prescribed to me by a doctor, therefore, like, there's a lot of justification Mm -hmm. for well, my medication is prescribed by a doctor. So therefore it is. Therefore it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. Therefore it's, you know, whatever. Insert whatever is is useful to that person. But her, you know, but again, you know, what I come back to is that she, at some point she was able to feel, some point when she got to California, she was able to feel, she talks about, cracking and then starting crying at the treatment center. 
And that opened up the floodgates. And how, how many times have we heard that? We're basically so many times they, where there's a, you know, you get cracked open. You think it's going to be the worst thing in the whole world. And you feel these feelings and then the pain starts to go away because you can walk through them and you walk through them with help. Mm, that's such a good visual. It's that it's that refusal to face the feelings, but mm. not realizing that in not facing the feelings, they're not actually going away. Oh, no. They are building in this pressure cooker mm -hmm. that is going to explode over time if you don't start letting that steam out. Yep. So, I mean, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly. I don't know how it feels, you know, from a substance abuse point of view, but I know how that feels where you just are about to absolutely self-destruct in the midst of that pain, those mm -hmm. feelings. And it's just at the such end, a relief. At the end, the scary part is that you ingest the chemicals and you still have the feelings. Ugh. You know, in the, in the beginning, you ingest the chemicals and... And then it just they gets go to away the where it's never enough. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you ingest the chemicals and you still have the feelings. And let me tell you, that is, oh, that is such a painful. One of the most poignant things that you said in your podcast was it's something along the lines of like, you know, you started using the heroin and, and the feelings and everything would go away. But you said, you said, no one told me that I would eventually get to the point where I'm not using to make the feelings go away, but I'm just using to not be sick. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's you, all of a sudden that middle ground. Yep. You're yeah. Just that I basically, I basically got to this point of only being sick, sick? and well. well. Oh yeah. And, gosh. and that was information I didn't know. And I think I, th I mean, I vent would venture to say that most of us enter into this addiction trap, if you will, not really understanding what, what this looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Like not really. Well, and I feel like. But who knows know, if that would make a difference? I don't, I, I, I cannot say that that would have made a difference. Maybe I would have chosen a different drug, but I definitely would have still chosen drugs. You know, I just remember feeling duped. And I feel like alcohol is the same way too. You know, it doesn't have to just apply to, you know, the dope sickness feeling. I mean, you do, it's dope sick, but alcohol you know, you do get to a point where you, you you start building a toleration to it and all of a sudden a glass of wine isn't enough. Now it's two. If you're drinking to drown out feelings, then two, then three, then four. Beer is the same way. Hard liquor, it doesn't matter, you know, and then all of a sudden you're waking up sick, but you can't, you can't feel your feelings. Oh, you feel some feelings, but. <gasps> but you don't want to the, feel them. They're not so. the ones you were trying not to feel though. Yeah. So you feel different bad feelings. I mean, some Shame. people, some people trade off bad feelings from, you know, I, I definitely know people who have, they do things they're ashamed of and they create bad feelings that they can feel now so that they don't have to deal with feelings that they felt before. Interesting. And it's all like building that same case. So, you know, just like a example would be someone who is badly sexually abused and they believe that their body is a, you know, a piece of shit and, you know, is not to be respected and is dirty and whatever. They may in, you know, likely in combination with drugs and alcohol, but they may do things that recreate that feeling mm -hmm. so that they can feel those feelings about what is happening currently 
but not have to revisit the feelings about what's going on, what went on before. So it's like it it doesn't – it creates the same message, mm-hmm. but it's a new narrative where you were in charge of what you were doing, where you slept with the person, you participated, you had some control in the narrative, and you created a narrative where the, the, the message was the same, you're dirty, but you opted into it, and therefore you're in control. Mm. And so we're building this case, right? They're building this case of – I'm dirty, I'll never be good enough, blah, 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 but I'm doing it to myself and I blah, 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 whatever. Yeah. And it that is so that you don't have to feel feelings from wherever that narrative started. So it's a coping skill. I know we've talked about coping skills so much on the podcast, but you know, there's the positive coping skills, the things that right. will teach you to kind of move forward, heal from trauma, you know, work through whatever you need to work through. And then there's the negative coping skills, which is what you're describing, which right. is I'm going to create a new, even if it's negative feeling, right. so that it still distracts me from this over this incident or thing or exactly. these feelings over here, which is really interesting. And I know a lot of people do mm-hmm. as a method of distraction. Mm-hmm. And it also, it also confirms whatever belief they had about themselves. Ah, yes. Also so true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Counseling sessions with Ashley. (laughs) Counseling sessions with me while I'm, while I have a cold should be. What stood out to you about Lisa's episode? Was there anything that was specific for you? There were a couple of things that stood out to me. um, When she talked about religious refuge, that stuck out to me because we've been doing a lot of podcasts where there's religion involved mm-hmm. and where religion became a ref where these extreme religious groups became a refuge from the intense dysfunction that was going on at home. Mm-hmm. And that was not my experience. So I just found it struck me as very interesting. Right. Lisa, as it related to that, said, there's nothing as intoxicating as knowing the truth. So in these extreme religions, what's so attractive that they are in touch, she uses the word intoxicating. Mm. There's nothing as intoxicating as knowing the truth, right? And so these groups, they teach you the truth and now you know the truth and that in and of itself is intoxicating. And this religious refuge that was there for people. And I do think, you know, I, there's healthy ways to do that and not, yeah. and it's not a commentary on religion itself. I just think it's an interesting thread that we're seeing, um, right. commonality, um, and that, you know, that the truth becomes an intoxication, which mm. lends itself to all of the other types of intoxication that yeah. people are um, experimenting with. And then um, she says, she talks about, you know, we aren't our disease. I am not a bad knee. I have a bad knee, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I go back and forth with that. I mean, I think that's true. And I think that it's also pretty hard to separate some, of you know, the, our mental illness with who we are, right? You know, I think mm-hmm. that's, it's, that that's a difficult thing, and I think that's a practiced thing. Yeah. Um, and and I talked about this when in in her episode too that you know when I first got sober, I, that's all I was because that's all I had. Mm-hmm. And over time, that has changed. But I think that um, it's it is a very tall order to try to separate 
you and your addiction from who you are because it is such an integral part of who one is and it doesn't have to be everything that you are. You are yeah. not just your disease. Yeah. You are not just this, but your disease has side effects to your personality or to your life experience that do shape who you are. Yeah. I think kind of on that same thread. So Chris Poulos, I think he was episode 12. His episode was from prison to from federal prison to the White House. Uh, an incredible episode. If you haven't had the chance to listen to it, go over to our website or Apple Podcasts or anywhere podcasts anywhere. are <laughs> distributed. I think we're pretty much everywhere for now Spotify. or by now. Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. Radio. So he recently posted something on Facebook where, you know, he's in the media quite a bit because he does speaking engagements and he does a lot of work, you know, within state reentry within Washington. But he was traveling and he posted something and he was all excited. He's like, I'm up here in Alaska and the local news station posted about me. I'm, I'm, forgive me, I can't remember the exact post, but basically what he was saying is he was excited because they weren't using the word ex-con, ex-addict or anything like that. He's like, they're posting what I'm doing now and I'm getting credit for it. So what he was excited about is, you know, the addiction, his past addiction will always be a part in shaping who he is today. It's, it's how, it's how he thinks now. It's, it's who he helps. It's, it's amazing the work that he's doing. And I just thought that was so interesting that he's so excited that he's almost coming to like a new place where he's wanting to be recognized not only for what he's come through, but for who he is now. Today. Today. But knowing and understanding that what that was and what he went through and his, you know, his, his disease has shaped that so specifically. I mean, he wouldn't have the career and the the drive to do what he has now if he hadn't gone through that in the past. So when you say that, that's kind of what it maybe makes me think of. But I can also understand that to a degree. Just I can't understand it obviously personally, but I, I feel like I can maybe empathize a little bit and go, okay, I understand. You know, you can't separate it out, right? It, it's still the disease. It's still that's it. You still are walking around with this disease. However, it's how you're living. It's what you've changed Mm -hmm. and it's recognizing that like that work is still happening and it changes year to year, day to day, whatever the case may be. Like we've said, you have to change either the programs that you're working or the things that work for you. You have to grow within your recovery, but how it's just an interesting discussion. Yeah. You know, and also, you know, one of the things that, that I've talked about is that you know, alcoholics and addicts in recovery, we get a gold star for doing things that normal people are expected to do. Yeah. And because life is, feels harder for us. Or, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that life is harder for us, but I do know that we have a fatal reaction to difficult things. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, you know, I think sometimes a lot of what is remarkable about what people have done with their lives, what they're doing with their lives is only really shown in context to where they came from. Mm. And that's when it gets tricky because, you know, if you say, oh, so-and-so graduated from college, isn't this amazing? Yeah, that's awesome. 
so-and-so graduated from college, isn't this amazing? They grew up homeless and put themselves through high school a lot, you know, whatever, like mm-hmm. insert all this adversity that they overcame. Well, that seems like more of an accomplishment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to sometimes it's like the fact I think to myself, like the fact that I am able to function as a normal adult, like I mean, pay bills, wake up, make a bed, brush my teeth, like just, I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is, you know, varsity level life (laughs) skills, right? Like I am killing the game, right? But that stuff is, that stuff is a, that's like the starting point for any human (laughs) being, you know, in modern society. And it only is impressive with context. So sometimes it's really hard to separate. Yeah, that's a good point. Lisa does a really good job of talking about the mindset of a perfectionist growing up in a home where there was a lot of chaos. Mm. And I thought that was really, like, she was a rule follower. She, you know, wanted to do very well. Like, she was just wanted to keep a tight grip on everything. And I thought that, I thought that was interesting because it also illuminated some of the stuff around, like, how kids act out is really about who they are. Mm. You know, like her brother went one way, she went another way. Like they mm-hmm. they were in the same situation and one, you know, she stuck to, you know, rule following and all this and 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 he 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 didn't. And so you can see that with any addiction, with any dysfunction that people's personalities dictate how a lot of how that's going to, uh, you know, unfold. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, kind of reminds me of me and my sister. Right. I have two younger sisters and a stepsister who's older than me. I love her very much. But me and my youngest sister uh, were very alike, but me and my middle sister were completely opposite. Uh, I was the perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Everything was, you know, always laid out nicely. And I was the rule follower. And if my mom wanted me to eat vegetables and I hated them, I would still eat them because I wanted to obey. And my sister was like... <laughs> You can take these vegetables and stick them where, you know, <laughs> sun, <laughs> the don't, sun shine. don't shine. Yeah. I ain't eating these vegetables. Right. So, yeah, that's that was, oh, God. And I got to be put in charge of her. That was fun. But you, you, you know, have different reactions to the same environment. Visceral different reactions. And in coming out of the childhood that we both came out of, our husbands have, have both had, you know, conversations with each other just talking about how it's just so interesting how – you know, people can be in the same environment, just like you're saying. Mm-hmm. And you come out feeling different, thinking different, experiencing it different. We we both have the same experiences. We talk about it. We we work through it together. But her experiences were also very different than mine. Mm-hmm. And how that's played in our adulthood now, mm-hmm. how it plays in her being a mom now. It's very interesting. You know, as as I'm thinking more about it, one of the things that struck me as important to point out, you can hear how much work both of these women have done, uh, Zena and Lisa, because of the way they talk about their family. Now, they look back and they talk about these horrific things that happened, 
these, you know, unpleasantries, these neglect in some cases, just this stuff that um, you could make a case to be angry and resentful about, Mm -hmm. right? And they talk about their mothers and they talk about their fathers in a way of giving them the space to be human. Hmm. And I think that that is a super, that's super indicative. You can hear how much work someone has done on a topic or with it, you know, on their family stuff or whatever in the way that they talk about their childhood and the way that they talk about these things. You know, Lisa talked about her parents in a way and, you know, they were doing the best that they can. My dad, you know, this is this, this depiction, this portrayal of people doing doing the best they can. You know, Bazena talks about how in retrospect she sees that her dad was fighting for custody because he wanted to spend time with his kids. Mm. And putting these things into perspective into an adult perspective that gives their family or their family members the benefit of the doubt and talking about them in a way that isn't angry but has empathy. Mm-hmm. Even even though the scenario hurt them, and I thought that I think I I think that is a very powerful thing and a really beautiful thing that you can really you can hear when yeah. people are talking about situations whether or not they have worked hard to forgive. Absolutely, that's such a great point, and it definitely speaks to the con- how important continued work is. Yes, because memories will definitely continue to pop up and come up and situations and triggers will happen. So, well, we want to thank our lovely guests. We want to thank Zena and Lisa. We really appreciate their time and, and again, just their courage to share their story. Check out their episodes, episodes 22 and 23, if you haven't listened to it already. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, feedback, we love to hear from you. So email us at podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. And if you really want it, I'll give you Ashley's cell phone number so you can call her in person. Just kidding. Do it. It's What's that 80s song? 8675309. Um, that's my phone number. Um, <laughs> What's the area code? 949. <laughs> um, also, check out Lisa Cohn's book, To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence. You can find it on Amazon. Alrighty. Well, thank you guys for tuning in and laughing through this with us. And we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. And that's it. <laughs> any any sign-off words, Ash? No, nothing. Usually it's later gators or we're losing her. We need to roll this girl into bed. <laughs> she needs to recover from all of her traveling. On behalf of Ashley and I. <laughs> <laughs> later gator. <laughs> Bye. Bye. (laughs) The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. 
We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 